welcome to the Turkish History Podcast, Episode 9, The Messenger. So last time, we discussed the rise and the fall of the Second Turkish Khanate. In time, Turkish nationalists will look back on the First and Second Khanates, these great pre-Islamic Turkish states, as a way of separating Turkishness from Islam. Proof, as Atatürk will eventually say, that the Turks were great before Islam. But why would such a thing even be necessary? Why would you even need to look back for a pre-Islamic Turkish past? It is because Turkishness and Turkish identity for centuries has been, and despite the best efforts of many Kemalists, still is, in some way intrinsically bound up with the religion of Islam. The emergence of Islam irrevocably and entirely changed the course of Turkish history forever. Now, the emergence of Islam was a world historical event. I mean, I think pretty inarguably, Muhammad is the single most important person to have ever lived, even if you don't believe in anything that he taught, even just based solely on the impact that his life had on the history of the world after him. The rapid spread of Islam The stunning conquest of the Arab armies and the creation of Islamic civilization are a dividing line. There's before, and then there's after. But this is not an Islamic history podcast. This is a Turkish history podcast. So we're going to focus on how Islam came to the Turks, and how the Turks entered into the new Islamic civilization that they, in time, would come not only to dominate, but in some ways to define. So what we're going to do is I'm going to spend this episode and the next covering the rise of Islam and bring us up to date in our Turkish history chronology. We're then going to spend a couple episodes on the first interactions and wars between the Muslims and the Turks and discuss how the Turks ultimately came into the Islamic world and began to shape its history. But before we begin, I'd like to know that I'm going to be discussing the history of Islam from a purely historical perspective. I'm not going to be making any claims about the truth of the religion. And you know, while I greatly respect people of faith, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to stick to this world, not the supernatural or spiritual world. And that means relying on both Muslim and non-Muslim sources to set out what happened, or probably happened, from a secular perspective. The perspective of a neutral outside observer, not with the perspective of a believer. So with that said, let's begin. Muhammad was born in about 570, in our Turkish history timeline about the time that Ishtami and Mukan Khan died, and the second generation of the Turkish Khanate took over far to the east. Muhammad was born in Mecca, a trading city halfway down the Arabian Peninsula on its western side, ruled by the powerful Quraysh tribe. Now the Quraysh were a commercial tribe, who grew rich off of trade as well as the large annual pilgrimage to Mecca. You see, Mecca was not simply a commercial center. It was a religious center, home to the Kaaba, the great sanctuary of the gods of Arabia, and was a focus of an annual pilgrimage for peoples across the Arab peninsula called the Hajj. Now, the commercial and the religious went hand in hand for the Quraysh. Arabia was just awash in religions, both through traditional polytheistic religions of the Arabs, with their bewildering array of gods and goddesses, as well as Judaism, Christianity, Manichaeanism, and Zoroastrianism. There were also Hanifs, which are ascetic monotheists, who renounce polytheism and turn to the spiritual practices of meditation and prayer, contemplating the oneness of the spiritual world. But Mecca was also a deeply, deeply unequal place. The elites within the Quraysh tribe, most importantly the Umayyad clan, were fabulously wealthy, having grown incomparably rich from the trade and the proceeds of the Hajj. But outside of this narrow band of elites, life was hard and poverty was the norm. Most people did not share in the wealth of trade and pilgrimage, and instead eked out a living, either serving the rich and powerful or tending to the herds in the burning heat of the desert. Even among the merchant class, there was great inequality. The wealthiest merchants of Mecca lived a vastly different life from the bulk of the middle-class merchants. Muhammad was a member of the Banu Hasim clan of the ruling Quraysh tribe. His clan, while historically one of the most prominent families in the tribe, had fallen on hard times by the time of his birth, and was no longer in the leading ranks. 
Muhammad came into the world basically as an orphan. His father, Abdullah, died almost six months before his birth. In the patriarchal world of Mecca, this was a cruel twist of fate, as without a father, he was basically considered to be an orphan, and his care would fall to whomever in his family could take him. Muhammad was passed off around a series of his family members, including living in the desert with the Bedouin for a while. During this time, his mother then died when he was only six. Muhammad finally came into the care of his uncle, Abu Talib, at the age of eight. He was not overtly mistreated by his relatives, but this was a very tough childhood. As one historian has said, Muhammad's guardians saw that he did not starve to death, but it was hard for them to do more for him, especially as the fortunes of his clan seemed to have been declining. He was never given any formal education and would remain illiterate for his whole life. And he would never really inherit any wealth from either his father or from his uncle, making rising through the deeply unequal commercial world of Mecca almost impossible. But beginning in his teenage years, Muhammad began accompanying Abu Talib on trading missions north to Syria. This inaugurated his career as a merchant. Though uneducated, he was revealed to be an intelligent and hardworking young man. He quickly gained a reputation as being honest and trustworthy and wise beyond his years. He came to be sought out as an arbiter of disputes among the merchants of Mecca. When he was about 25 years old, this reputation led to a proposal for marriage by Khadija, a widow 15 years older than him, who had inherited her late husband's trading business. Likely, she was looking for a business partner as much as for a mate. Muhammad accepted, and the two married in 595. The marriage was, by all accounts, very happy. Even in the polygamous society in which he lived, Muhammad would not marry another woman while Khadija lived. Over the next 15 years, Muhammad and Khadija built a life together. Their business prospered and they had seven children, but only four daughters would end up surviving into adulthood. So by the time he entered into his late 30s, Muhammad had built a comfortable but unassuming and unremarkable life for himself. He had overcome the difficulties of his childhood and his start in life as an orphan. He was a relatively successful businessman, though far removed from the truly rich elites among the Quraysh in Mecca, like the Umayyads. He had a very happy family life, and he was widely respected in his community of middle-class merchants. But he began to become somehow discomforted. I think that like a lot of middle-aged men, as his life became set, as the path of his life became fixed, the dreams of childhood perhaps having ended or changed, and as he had achieved a certain level of comfort and stability as life settled into a routine, he felt that something was missing. No doubt he felt resentment against the spectacularly rich merchants of the elite clans of the Quraysh, who dominated his city, living lavishly, while even their own kinsmen of lesser clans struggled. He began to take long walks into the deserts and mountains around Mecca, and he began spending more and more time with the Hanifs, those ascetic monotheists who had renounced wealth and the material world. He began to pray, alone, in a cave in the mountains above Mecca for weeks at a time. According to Islamic tradition, it was while praying alone in this cave that, at the age of 40, in the year 610, Muhammad was first visited by the angel Gabriel. Gabriel revealed to him the first of the prophetic verses that would form the Quran, commanding him to recite them. Muhammad was deeply distressed and terrified by this vision, and he fled the cave, running to Khadija, who held his head in her lap and comforted him. He had never before had any supernatural visions or revelations, but the revelations did not stop. He said they came to him like the ringing of a bell, increasingly after the first revelation. Roughly a year after this first revelation, Muhammad began to preach, first in secret and then in public, reciting the revelations that he had received and laying out to all of Mecca his new faith. It would come to be called Islam, or submission in Arabic. Muhammad taught that God was one, singular and without equal, beyond human understanding or form, that God does not have sons or daughters or holy spirits or other divisions, that God does not beget nor is begotten. In the words of the Shahada, the Muslim profession of faith, there is no God but God. Muhammad taught that all people were equal before God, 
that the rich needed to care for the poor, that lavish wealth and inequality were contrary to the will of God, and that all people should reject materialism and embrace the spiritual world. He taught that his new religion, this pure monotheism, was in fact the original form of monotheism taught to the prophets, from Abraham to Jesus, but which had been corrupted. He claimed no supernatural powers beyond the prophetic gift and performed no miracles. He denied being a Messiah or a son of God. Over and over again, he insisted that he was merely a messenger. He had been sent to call his people to the true faith, and he was to be the last messenger, the seal of the prophets. His, the final and complete form of the original revelations sent to God's prophets through the ages. In form, his revelations were said to be the pinnacle of beauty in the Arabic language, far beyond the capabilities of an illiterate merchant. Muhammad's message found a willing audience, particularly among the poor of Mecca. See, Mecca had grown fabulously rich off of the trade and the Hajj, but this wealth was not spread widely. It was highly concentrated in the elite clans of the Quraysh, who themselves were deeply tied to the old polytheistic cults of the Arabs. Muhammad's message attacked this social structure, and his new movement drew on the poor and the dispossessed. As his following grew, the elites of Mecca became alarmed. In 619, Khadija died of natural causes at the age of 65. Muhammad entered into deep mourning, calling this his year of sorrow. After her death, the conflict between the Muslims and the Meccan elite grew worse. The Meccan elite began to persecute the new faith. Fearing for their lives, on July 16, 622, Muhammad and his followers were forced to flee Mecca in the Hijra. This date would mark year zero, from which all Islamic calendars count time. These refugees traveled north to the city of Medina, where Muhammad established his community, called the Ummah, which now means the global Muslim community. Over the next several years, the Ummah and the Meccans were locked in a bitter struggle. Through a mixture of war, raiding, and diplomacy, Muhammad managed to unite the surrounding tribes and settlements, converting them to Islam and bringing them into the Ummah. In Mecca itself, his success caused conversions and defections, and in 629, Muhammad led an army of 10,000 men and conquered Mecca. The Kaaba was cleansed of its idols and dedicated to the one God. The direction of Islamic prayer shifted from Jerusalem to Mecca. Muhammad had defeated the Quraysh and stood triumphant, the orphan, now the supreme ruler of his native city. But Muhammad didn't want to eradicate his old enemies. What he really wanted to do was bring the old Meccan elite into the fold. What he wanted was really an alliance with himself as the senior partner. The most important of the clans he cultivated was the Umayyads, who he installed in prominent positions. While there were some who were beyond redemption and some who refused to accept Muhammad, by and large, the new settlement dictated by Muhammad worked, for now. In time, this divide between the earlier true believers and the old Meccan elite would come to break apart and divide the Ummah. But for now, this victory and alliance left Muhammad as the supreme power of Western Arabia. Though it's unclear what his goals really were at this point, most likely, he saw himself as the prophet for the Arabs. That is, the person who would bring monotheism to his people. He likely had no conception at all how far and fast his new faith would spread. So his goal was probably to unite the Arabs, religiously, politically, and militarily. One God, one prophet, one state. So Muhammad sent ambassadors to tribes and settlements across Arabia, and one by one, they submitted. Some were defeated in battle, but many more accepted the messenger and his new faith. These alliances were often sealed by marriage, and in time Muhammad had a total of 12 wives, not including Khadija, who retained a special place in his heart. His favorite was Aisha, daughter of Abu Bakr and a virtual princess of the Meccan elite. Aisha was beautiful, intelligent, shrewd, and fearless, with a biting sense of humor and a powerful sense of her own destiny. She was famous for her wit and her inspiring cries during battle, where she would ride behind the men and urge them on to victory in a shrill but oddly beautiful voice, a voice completely unmistakable as hers. 
She was a master of both manipulation and inspiration. She knew what she wanted and how to get it. In time, she would become one of the most powerful leaders of the Ummah. But Aisha quickly fell into dispute with Ali ibn Abu Talib, Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law, the son of Abu Talib, the man Muhammad had come to live with after being orphaned. Ali had been one of the earliest converts to Islam. After Muhammad had received his first revelation in the cave, he called all of his closest kinsmen together and asked who would assist him. Only Ali, the youngest of them all, pledged that he would. He would go on to become a great general, Muhammad's closest confidant and advisor, and would marry Muhammad's favorite daughter, Fatima. He carried a great sword named Zulfikar, or the split one, which ended in a forked point like a serpent's tongue. Ali had been given this sword by Muhammad, along with a name befitting his great courage, Asad Allah, the Lion of God. But though he was fearless in battle, Ali himself disliked both war and bloodshed, and always maintained that war should be the last option taken. According to many sources, Muhammad repeatedly said that it was his wish that Ali should succeed him after his death. By 630, just a few years after conquering Mecca, Muhammad had succeeded in uniting virtually all of the Arab peninsula under his rule and his new faith. In 632, Muhammad completed the first true Islamic Hajj, departing Medina to go on pilgrimage to Mecca. He was an old man now, and he likely knew his death was coming. He gave a final sermon on the hills outside Mecca, where many years earlier he had first been visited by the angel and received his first revelation. He warned his followers against falling into pre-Islamic traditions after he was gone, both religious and political. He wanted his new faith to stick, and his new community of believers, the Ummah, to remain united. He then returned to Medina. His health continued to worsen, and he fell seriously ill within a few months of his pilgrimage. On Monday, June 8, 632, Muhammad died. He was 62 years old. He began his life as a penniless orphan, and ended it as the messenger of God the supreme ruler of all of Arabia, and like I said, probably the most important person who ever lived. According to one source, his last words were, O oh God, have pity on those who succeed me. As we will come to see, these were prescient words. In the aftermath of Muhammad's death, his successors had to figure out what to do. A division came to emerge among them as to who should lead the Ummah after Muhammad's death. One camp coalesced around Aisha, her father Abu Bakr, and the great general and warrior Umar. This faction would grow into the Sunni sect of Islam, to which the vast majority of Muslims and most Turks belong. The other faction coalesced around Ali ibn Abu Talib. This faction was termed the Shi'at Ali, the party of Ali, and would in time become the minority Shia sect. Abu Bakr and Aisha moved swiftly and shrewdly. Muhammad had spent his last days on his deathbed in Aisha's hut, built along the wall of the great mosque of Medina. As he lay dying, Muhammad had asked for a scribe to be sent to him so he could dictate something, so that you will not be led into error, according to him. But Aisha, knowing that Muhammad was quite possibly attempting to get a scribe to record that her rival Ali should succeed the messenger, managed to delay the scribe until Muhammad could no longer speak. Aisha and Abu Bakr now moved to supplant Ali before he could act. You see, Ali, as a member of the Prophet's immediate family, was in ritual mourning according to ancient Arab customs. This allowed Abu Bakr to call a great meeting of the Ummah leaders, called a shura, or a council, which Ali would not be able to attend. In the shura, Abu Bakr and Umar prevailed. Abu Bakr became the first caliph, or successor to the Prophet. Upon learning that he had lost in the shura, Ali did however act to deny Abu Bakr and Aisha an important symbolic victory. In the dead of night, he hastily buried Muhammad in the room in which he had died, in the bedroom of Aisha's hut. Muhammad remains buried there to this day, though the room has long since been rebuilt in marble and covered with a majestic green dome. In doing this, Ali denied his rivals the chance to turn the messenger's funeral into a grand ceremony to bolster their own authority. But this act of defiance was all he could do. Abu Bakr's succession could not be questioned, and so Ali bided his time and promised to loyally serve Abu Bakr.
Thus began what Ali called his years of dust and thorns. Now Abu Bakr, as caliph, immediately faced a range of problems, but also a wide range of possibilities. Most importantly, it was not entirely clear that Muhammad's successor would actually be able to hold Arabia together. If you're looking back in time, and starting with the prior knowledge that Islam is going to become this great faith, and that the Arab armies are going to conquer virtually the whole known world, it's easy to look back on history and say, well, of course, this was how it was going to work out. But at the time, that really wasn't all that clear at all. A lot of the Arab tribes had sworn loyalty to Muhammad personally, and they would have seen this obligation ending with him. And of course, there were imitators, men who saw what Muhammad did and thought, hey, I can do that too. So throughout Arabia, there were tribes breaking away politically from the caliph and from the ummah, with some keeping the new faith and others being led by leaders proclaiming themselves to be new prophets. Maintaining the control of Arabia was absolutely critical, and it was clearly going to be a challenge. But there were also interesting new possibilities. As we discussed back in episode 5, the Byzantines and the Persians and the Turks had wrapped up their final war in 629, just a couple of years before Muhammad's death. Now the Romans and the Turks had been the victors in this war, but the Romans were actually merely nominally victors. They were able to reconquer their Middle Eastern territories in Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and North Africa after 20 years of Persian occupation, but it was a Pyrrhic victory. The war had exhausted the Roman state. Their treasury was empty. Emperor Heraclius had been forced to even melt down the golden chalices and ornaments of churches across the empire to pay for his war to defeat the Persians. For their part, the Persians had suffered an absolutely crushing defeat at the hands of the Romans and the Turks. Tong Yabgu Khan and Bori Shad had led a further invasion of Iran that had crushed the Sassanid army and had opened up the way for a full-on Turkish conquest of Iran, which had only been halted by the implosion of the western Gukturk Khanate on Tong Yabgu Khan's death. Since then, the famous Persian general Sharbaraz, who had been defeated by Borishad in northern Iran, had besieged the Sassanid capital of Tesaphon and overthrown Kavad II, installing himself as the king of kings, the Shah, with Roman support. But Sharbaraz was then assassinated, and two Shahs declared themselves, Boran in Tesaphon and Khosrau III in Khorasan, in the northeast of Iran. This led to a civil war, of course, further exhausting the Sassanid state, which resulted in Yazdegerd III coming to the throne as the nominal king of kings of a collapsing empire in 632, the same year as Muhammad's death. The Roman and Sassanid empires faced other problems as well. Both were riven by religious conflict, the struggle between Chalcedonian and Monophysite Christians in the Byzantine Empire and between Nestorian Christians and Zoroastrians in Iran. They were also still reeling from waves of plague, the Black Death, which swept in from Central Asia, probably carried on Turkish trading caravans, actually. There is also evidence of continuing climate change. As we discussed back in episode 3, the mid-6th century had also seen years of crop failures, potentially brought about by a cooling of the climate due to volcanic activity, a cloud of ash thrown into the atmosphere. And remember back in episode 6, we discussed how the Tang had called the year 627 a year of unseasonable cold? Well, that was part of a global rapid cooling of the climate, which is mentioned by sources from China to Ireland. The Irish chroniclers say, the sun shone, but it gave no warmth. So this led to massive crop failures across Eurasia, which were made worse by plague and war. And these were all agricultural societies. Most people grew crops, so this was a huge problem. So this was in general a time of palpable fear and uncertainty in the central civilized lands of Byzantium and Iran. Ravaged by disease, war, and famine, they had, since the mid-6th century, been put under increasing pressure by the peripheral peoples, the Turks foremost among them, actually. In 619, a Byzantine eyewitness of the Avar raids around Constantinople really captured the mood, I think. He wrote, There was a time when things were going well for us, and there was no warfare to terrify us. But the summit of prosperity, as they say, was changed through our carelessness and tripped us up, for we were not able to maintain our good fortune untarnished. All of this created an environment that the peripheral peoples bordering these settled civilizations were able to exploit. 
the Avars, the Turks, and the Arabs all benefited from this situation and all ended up forming powerful states in the early 600s. Now, we've already walked through what happened to the Turkish Khanate, but if you were an outsider at the time and were asked, which of these peripheral states do you think is going to end up conquering the central states? Who's going to end up overthrowing the Sassanids and the Romans and conquering the world? You'd probably go with the Turks. Ultimately, of course, as we have covered over the past episodes, the Turks were not able to capitalize on these opportunities, and despite being on the verge of success, they fell into internal division and imploded instead of conquering Iran. But the Arabs would not make that mistake. They would ultimately, and perhaps unexpectedly, be the peripheral people who would shock the world. Now, the Arabs had already had prior dealings with the Byzantines, and were indeed culturally and religiously far closer to Constantinople than to Ctesiphon. Muhammad had traveled to Syria as a young merchant, and was familiar with the Middle Eastern provinces of the Byzantine Empire. Following the defeat of the Sassanids in 628, rumors reached Medina that the Romans saw that the new unification of the Arabs was a threat, and were going to invade Arabia to put pressure on them. In 630, in one of his last military campaigns, Muhammad led an army north to the Byzantine borderlands to meet this supposed Byzantine army. But it turns out that the Byzantines actually had no such plans. I honestly doubt if Heraclius had ever even heard of Muhammad. And if he had, it was probably mere rumors or side notes and reports from officials and generals in the newly reconquered, you know, distant provinces. You gotta remember, Roman rule was restored in the Middle East only after defeating the Persians a couple years earlier, and they didn't really have time or strength or, you know, the ability to really reimpose imperial authority. So instead, the Muslim army just sort of wandered around the town of Tabuk near Aqaba, and with no sign of a Byzantine army, they then just kind of went home. But the fear that the Romans might send an army was clearly in the minds of Muhammad and his advisors, including Abu Bakr. So in light of all of this, Abu Bakr had two priorities upon becoming caliph. First, and most importantly, crush the Arab descent and put down these new false prophets. Abu Bakr accomplished this pretty quickly. The nascent rebellions against the caliph were brutally crushed in the so-called Ridda Wars, or Wars of Apostasy. This took about two years. The second priority was to deal with the Byzantines and the Sassanids. But this did not mean toppling the Byzantine and Sassanid empires. It meant raiding, putting military pressure on borderlands, probing defenses, and so on. The armies of Islam did not start out knowing how successful they were actually going to end up being. Abu Bakr's goal was not to topple empires, but to set up his state in an optimal position with them, and to forestall any attempts they might have at regime change in Arabia. So almost immediately upon becoming caliph, Abu Bakr began dispatching small forces up into the soft Byzantine underbelly. They succeeded in capturing several small towns and defeating small Byzantine garrisons. Byzantine sources, for example, record a raid by the Arabs of Muhammad near Gaza in which the Byzantine garrison fled. But though he ordered the first tentative, probing raids and small skirmishing forces into Byzantine territory, Abu Bakr would not live to see the conquest of the Middle East. In 634, just two years into being caliph, the elderly Abu Bakr died. On his deathbed, he appointed the great general Umar to serve as the next caliph. And it would be under Umar that the great Islamic conquests would begin. Umar ibn al-Khattab was born in 583, making him about 15 years younger than Muhammad. He was born into a wealthy and educated merchant family in a wealthy and prominent clan of the Quraysh tribe. Now, like most wealthy Meccans, he had initially opposed Muhammad when he had started preaching, and Umar became a particularly cruel tormentor of the early Muslim community. According to tradition, he recommended to the Quraysh leadership that Muhammad be killed and then set out to do it himself, but he was then converted to Islam by his sister, who was herself an early convert to Muhammad's new faith, and he came to swear his loyalty to Muhammad on the very sword with which he had intended to kill the messenger. Umar then went on to be one of Muhammad's greatest warriors and generals in Muhammad's conquests. Umar was renowned for his bravery, his intelligence, his political shrewdness, and his sense of justice. But he was also renowned for his anger, flying into fits of uncontrollable rage. He was a complicated guy. 
He was a lover of the arts and poetry, but could be cruel and vicious to his enemies. He believed strongly in supporting and giving to the poor, but he was also a strict disciplinarian and an authoritarian. After accepting Islam, Umar abandoned the wealthy lifestyle of his upbringing and lived in a humble mud hut, even during his rule as caliph. He thought he was always right, which could be deeply annoying, but he also kind of mostly was right. It was under Umar that the Arab forces moved into the Levant and the Middle East in force. Small Arab armies, both raiders and occupiers, invaded Palestine and Syria throughout 634 and 635, conquering small towns and driving Byzantine garrisons out. They raided deeply in the countryside. One Byzantine source notes that the security situation in 634 in Palestine was deteriorating rapidly and that the roads were becoming unsafe for travel between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Umar launched similar small raids and probing attacks into Sassanid territory. In 633, the city of Hira fell, which brought the Muslims to the attention of the Sassanids. In both Roman and Persian lands, the Arabs were not conquering major cities. They were filtering through the countryside, raiding and then disappearing, engaging in small skirmishes. These raids, finally, snapped Heraclius and Yazdegerd to attention. On the Sassanid side, a Persian army was able to defeat the Muslim forces at the Battle of the Bridge near Kufa in Iraq in 634, but Yazdegerd knew the situation was dire, and so in 634, just after this battle, the Persians began reaching out to Heraclius to see if there was some deal that they could make, but it was just too late for the Sassanid state. On the Roman side, Heraclius himself traveled to Antioch in northern Syria in 635 to get a handle on what was happening in these oh-so-newly-reconquered territories. Once there, he realized that the situation was serious and deteriorating. Heraclius knew he needed to deal with this new power in Arabia. He was above all concerned that the Arabs would be able to threaten Damascus, which was the critical city to control Syria. So he scraped together all of the resources of his tired empire, Heraclius assembled a truly massive army near Damascus of about 80,000 to 150,000 men, the last army, built with whatever was still left in the treasury after the devastating war with Persia and whatever he could find that was available in years of plague and famine. This was it. There could be no other army after this was made. Heraclius then turned this last army over to his top general, the Armenian Vahan and ordered him to march south. Near the valley of the river Yarmuk, scouts reported the presence of Arab armies numbering about 25,000. An initial small encounter resulted in the Byzantines losing a contingent of forces led by a Greek general named Theodore. Following this loss, Theodore and Vahan fell into an argument over whose fault it was, whereupon Vahan's troops proclaimed Vahan emperor. Theodore then withdrew his troops. This disagreement may well be considered the most important disagreement in military history, given the consequences that would follow from it. Because seeing this discord in the Byzantine armies, the Arabs pounced. The Byzantines attempted to flee, but were bogged down in the mud of the river valley. The vastly outnumbered Arab forces were able to cut down Roman soldiers trapped in the mud, or slipping up and down the steep hills of the valley, who were crushed and drowned. The Roman army, scraped together with all of the remaining resources of the exhausted empire, the last army that the state could raise, was annihilated. The Battle of Yarmouk was a catastrophe for the Byzantines. We don't know how many died, but news of it spread even to Gaul, where Frankish chroniclers recorded it. The loss crippled Byzantine forces in the Middle East. Upon hearing the horrifying news, Heraclius in Antioch realized that he could not raise another army. The state's scant resources had been spent. The coffers were empty. The population decimated by plague and war and starvation. He had no choice. These oh-so-recently-reconquered Middle Eastern territories of the empire, the rich lands of Syria, Palestine, and even Egypt, were lost. The Romans were just flat out of options. They had to retreat behind the wall of mountains of the Anatolian Plateau. According to tradition, Heraclius said, Sosus Syria, meaning, rest in peace Syria, as he fled through the mountain passes back to Anatolia. He knew 
that it was lost for his lifetime at least. The stunning victory at Yarmouk allowed the Arabs to take Damascus and extend their conquest throughout the Levant. Arab forces quickly overwhelmed the rich cities of the region, including Homs, Amman, and Jerusalem. In 637, Omar even made a personal visit to Jerusalem. In time, Damascus would come to be the capital of the caliphate. From this base in Syria, the armies of Islam would spread west, capturing Egypt and North Africa, and eventually crossing the Straits of Hercules to take Spain. They would move north into Anatolia, raiding the Byzantine Empire before eventually setting siege to Constantinople itself. But for our story, the most important thing is that they also moved east. As had happened in Syria, minor skirmishes in the late 620s and early 630s in Iraq paved the way for an invasion in 636. The Sassanid Empire was on the ropes at this point, decimated by its war with Rome and with the Turks, and by disease and famine. As Sassanid defenses crumbled in front of them, the Arabs continued to push forward. In late 636 and early 637, just after the Battle of Yarmouk, Arab forces besieged the Persian capital of Ctesiphon. Now, the Sassanids were, of course, not going to take this lying down, but they were really in no shape to fight. Having been utterly defeated by the Romans and the Turks, riven by civil war, and subject to bouts of plague, famine, and starvation, they were just not in a position to put up a fight against these new invaders. Still, they tried. Rustam, a prince of the royal family, assembled a massive army drawn from across the empire in the north, near the modern-day border of Armenia and Azerbaijan. In the fall of 637, Rustam's army moved south across the Tigris and slowly began to push the Muslims out of northern Mesopotamia. They scored a couple of minor victories and forced the Muslim forces to lift the siege of Tesaphon. But then they encountered a Muslim force near the village of Kadash in Iraq. The Arabs lost this first encounter, but were quickly joined by 20,000 fresh reinforcements from Arabia, following which, on January 6, 638, the Arab forces reassembled and counterattacked the Persians. The Sassanid army, though vastly outnumbering the Arabs, was crushed and fled in a chaotic rout. Having defeated the Persians in this great field battle, the Arabs were now able to go back on the offensive and over the course of 638, they established control over all of Lower Iraq. But they didn't just conquer. They began to take over what remained of the Sassanid state infrastructure. As one Persian chronicler says, they began to collect the taxes. By late 638, the Arabs were able to resume the siege of the Persian capital. Seeing that the situation was hopeless, Emperor Yazdegerd fled, along with his family and his royal court, and all of the Sassanid royal treasury. But this flight was interrupted, and after a short battle, the Sassanids were defeated, and the royal treasury itself fell into the hands of the Arabs. Barely escaping with his life, the Sassanid emperor fled to Fars province, the homeland of the Sassanid dynasty on the Iranian plateau, behind the Zagros mountains, to continue the fight. But it was not to be successful. It's interesting to compare the Romans and the Sassanids. You know, why was it that the Roman Empire, though horribly weakened by the Arab advances, actually survived, whereas the Sassanid Empire is about to be completely destroyed and conquered? And there are a couple real differences that explain this. Firstly, the Byzantines still had their capital city, which was incredibly defensible, and had at least the resources and the manpower to place small local armies on the passes in the mountains guarding the Anatolian plateau. The Sassanids, on the other hand, had lost both their capital and their largest armies. Whereas the Romans had held their core economic territories in Anatolia, the economic heartland of the Sassanids, the fertile lands of Mesopotamia, had been lost. Additionally, the Sassanid state was already in dire straits after its crippling defeat at the hands of the Romans and the Turks. Broken by decades of war, famine, and disease, the Sassanid state essentially ceased to function, though local officials and notables across Iran began defecting to the conquerors. 
With the Sassanid elite already beginning to switch sides, the Arab conquest of the Sassanid domains was swift. While the Arabs were really focused during the first couple years after the Battle of Kadash on cementing their control of Iraq and Mesopotamia, they almost immediately began sending small forces onto the Iranian plateau to continue the conquest. In the early 640s, the Arab armies began marching into Iran in force. They marched in three main lines of advance. The first column moved up through Khuzestan in southwestern Iran, up through the river Karun and into the province of Fars, the old heartland of both the Sassanids and the Achaemenids, the province from which the Sassanids and the Achaemenids had emerged. Most of the cities encountered submitted immediately, though the Sassanid general Hormizdan managed to put up a resistance for a couple of years. Secondly, Small Arab forces attacked along the southern coast of Iran and the Persian Gulf, moving from bay to bay down the coast and heading towards the river Indus. They would also attack northwards, linking up with the Central Column's forces to attack the province of Fars together. The third and principal line of attack was through the Zagros Mountains, following the same route taken earlier by Alexander the Great millennia before. The Armenian chronicler Sebaos says that the Arab army was 40,000 strong. Yazdegerd determined that this was his final chance to defeat the Arabs, so he scraped together all of the troops that he could. Just like Heraclius's army, this was the last army. There could not be another. All of the resources of the state had been spent. Yazdegerd assembled an army of 60,000 troops, but these were not the cream of the crop not the highly professional troops of the Sassanid Empire of old, or the famous immortals, the Shah's royal guards. These had all been lost in the wars with Byzantium and the Turks, and then the civil wars, and then the war with the Arabs in Iraq. But this was the best that Yazdegerd could do. In 641, the two armies met near the city of Nahavand. The Persians, though outclassed by the Arabs, hoped that their numerical advantage could carry the day. But the night before the battle, a rumor spread among the Persian camp that the Muslims had just received reinforcements. Already on edge, many of the Persian troops bolted and abandoned the camp at night. The Muslim forces then routed the remainder and raided the entirety of central Iran. As Sabeo says, spreading forays across the whole land, they put man and beast to sword, capturing 22 fortresses, and slaughtered all the living beings in them. The Arabs followed the victory at Nahavand up with devastating raids across southwestern and central Iran, specifically targeting the supporters of the Sassanid royal family. Yazdegerd's inability to stop them and his crushing defeat at Nahavand convinced those Iranian nobles who had not yet defected to the Arabs that the jig was up. The Persian nobility defected en masse to the Arabs, delivering Iran to their rule. Yazdegerd was now out of options. He went on the run and fled to the city of Marv in Khorasan, in the northern borders of Iran, near to the borders of the now faltering western Turkish Khanate, at this time split between Ishbara Tolis in the southwest and Yukuk Shad in the northeast, as we discussed back in episode 7. As I mentioned then, Yazdegerd then petitioned the Turks to help him fight the Arabs. But Yukuk Shad and Ishbara Tolis were far too focused on their other problems, namely trying to destroy each other and haggling with the Tang. Had they come to the aid of the Sassanids, it is entirely possible that the steppe warriors would have been able to defeat the Arabs. Indeed, this was probably the last chance to stop the Muslim conquest of Iran and in turn of Central Asia, but it passed. Yazdegerd was boxed into the northeastern corner of Iran and was incapable of pulling together a force capable of defeating the Arabs now. He was so despondent that he sent word to the Tang court that he was prepared to offer submission, presumably intending to flee to China. But he did not receive a favorable response from Emperor Tai Zong, who was far more concerned with the Turkish Khanate to his west. The only remaining Sassanid force of any size in the field was the army of Medea, controlled by the prince Khorazad. Seeing the writing on the wall, Khorazad betrayed Yazdegerd and defected. This was a disaster, and Yazdegerd was now left with only a very small army, 
most of whom themselves then defected or deserted. Yazdegerd tried to flee east, making for the borders of China to seek refuge with the Tang. But the Arabs caught up with him and defeated his small force. Yazdegerd was now virtually a bandit, alone with nothing more than a handful of troops. Shortly thereafter, he was killed in 651, according to tradition, by a Turkish miller, and his head was presented to the new Arab governor of Iran. His son Peroz actually managed to flee to the remote Pamir Mountains and made contact with the Tang, where he would attempt to promote the Sassanid cause. In time, Peroz III would manage to convince Empress Wu to establish a Persian-area command under the Protectorate General to pacify the West in far eastern Iran. But this was unsuccessful. Iran was just too far from China, and the Arabs were just too strong. After they had consolidated their hold on Iran, Arab armies would again begin advancing east in 663, and Peroz fled the wilderness of the Pamirs to the Chinese capital at Chang'an, living out his days as a guest of the Tang court. The Sassanid Empire was finished, conquered by an army from the west for the first time since Alexander the Great. But just as Iranian culture proved able to withstand the Macedonians, it would withstand the Arabs, and ultimately, it would rise and flourish again. You know, the Greeks had a saying about their relationship with Rome. Conquered, we conquer. That is, that even when Greek arms failed, Greek culture ultimately defeated the culture of their conquerors. And a similar thing is eventually going to happen here in Persia. The culture of the Persians would, in time, come to shape and imbue the culture of the emerging Islamic civilization. But we're going to leave the Muslim armies of the East there for now, masters of the newly conquered territories in Iran, and we'll pick back up with them in a couple episodes, as they begin moving into Central Asia on a collision course with the Turks. So for now, we're going to close out the episode by returning to the Arab heartlands, to finish the story on the successors to the messenger. Umar had overseen the remarkable expansion of the caliphate, not just into Iran as we have discussed, but into the Caucasus, the borderlands of Anatolia, Egypt, and North Africa. Now, Iran was the main prize, the most shocking of all of these conquests, but the others were incredibly rich, incredibly productive lands. These were shocking conquests. No one could believe what the Muslim armies had accomplished. Under Umar, the Muslims began a practice that they would continue throughout their conquests, the establishment of garrison cities. Generally, instead of installing themselves in the old cities of their newly conquered subjects, the Arabs would found garrison cities in which they would place their soldiers. In Iraq, these were Basra and Kufa. In Egypt, it was Fustat, modern-day Cairo. These garrison cities were meant to keep the Arabs separate and distinct from the people they conquered, but they quickly became filled with traitors, slaves, prisoners of war, and others. The Muslims wanted to keep themselves separate for several reasons, but primary among them was that at this point, they did not actually want converts. It sounds weird to some people now, but the early Muslims wanted to conquer. They didn't want to convert. See, Umar had established a system called the Diwan, by which every Muslim received an annual stipend funded by the proceeds of conquest. Converts would become full members of the Ummah and therefore would be entitled to a part of the spoils of the conquest and a seat at the table. Additionally, converts would be exempted from paying the most lucrative taxes that funded the state, the jizya tax on non-Muslims and the land taxes. So from a purely accounting perspective, each conversion both increased the state's liabilities while decreasing its revenues. Mass conversions would bankrupt the state, and so they had to be avoided at all costs. At this point as well, Islam was probably seen as monotheism for the Arabs, not as like a universal religion, which it would become eventually. In the years to come, through a reworking of Arab customs of adoption and intermarriage by which outsiders could become members of another tribe, the religion began to spread among the conquered until it became the universal religion that we know today. But in early years, this was not the case. Now, Umar's government style was autocratic, but it was also efficient and well-run, 
and Umar was dedicated to general welfare. For example, in addition to the Diwan system, Umar organized state caravans of food to Mecca and Medina following famines. He also established the Bayt al-Mal, or the House of Wealth, a financial institution that administered taxes and distributed charity, essentially the first welfare state in the world. Economically, Umar lifted the heavy taxes that the Roman and Sassanid states had imposed to finance their wars. Instead of taxing trade and consumption, Islam taxed wealth. Umar also instituted a general free trade area within the caliphate. Now, as the caliphate had conquered both Roman territories of the Levant and the Mediterranean shore and the Sassanid heartlands of Iraq, they united the Middle East politically for the first time since the days of Alexander the Great, thousands of years earlier. For millennia, the Middle East had been divided between Persia and Rome. Iraq and Mesopotamia were the heartland of the Persian state, while Syria, the Levant, and Egypt were the richest territories of the Roman Empire. Trade barriers, conflict, and constant war therefore separated these two rich lands from each other. But no more. The Arab conquests unified them, for the first time in history basically, and the trade barriers and tariffs between these incomparably rich lands fell away. Additionally, the Arabs provided security, a functioning legal system, and an end to war. And coincidentally, all of this was coming together just as the effects of the Great Plagues and the climatic crisis were receding. The result of all of this was a massive economic boom and an expansion of trade. So things were in general looking up, but there were tensions. In particular, there were tensions between the old Meccan aristocracy on the one hand and those who had been with Muhammad before his conquest of Mecca, the Muhajirun who had fled Mecca with him, and the Ansari, or the helpers, who had invited him to Medina. In particular, the aristocratic Umayyad clan of the Quraysh began to accumulate power. It was only when Muhammad made his peace with the old Meccan aristocracy that the Umayyads joined the fold. But after Muhammad's death, the old aristocracy began to reassert itself, taking the prime governorships and senior officers for itself. The Umayyad clan in particular became the main winner in this, and by the end of Umar's reign, they would be well ensconced in power, particularly in Syria, where Umar had appointed a certain Muawiyah as governor. Remember that name, we're going to come back to him next time. This was of course deeply resented by the Muhajirun and the Ansari, who felt that they were the original Muslims, the real Muslims, the ones who had been with the Prophet from the beginning, and that they should be the ones to lead. They saw these rich aristocrats as converts in name only. Additionally, they felt that the Umayyads' riches, their love of luxury, their aristocratic worldview, betrayed the teachings of the Messenger. The Muhajirun and the Ansari gravitated towards Ali, the philosopher prince, the son-in-law of the Prophet while the Umayyads began to gravitate toward his bitter rival, Aisha, the Prophet's favorite wife. There were also tensions between the Arabs and the people they had conquered, most importantly the nobility of Iraq and Egypt and Iran and Syria. The coming of the Arabs meant that many great lands and estates were taken from these nobles and given to the conquerors. Additionally, there were tensions between those Arabs who remained in the Arab homelands and those who left and settled in the rich lands of conquest. Rich lands that, depending on your perspective, would either corrupt them from the austere, purely Arab faith of the desert, or inspire them to participate in the creation of a wealthy and new cosmopolitan Islamic culture. And these tensions overlapped and crossed against each other. There were Umayyad aristocrats who traveled to Syria, imbibed local culture, and raised up local Christians, while living in the great estates and palaces formerly owned by wealthy Roman merchants. Poorer Muhajirun Arabs, who moved to Iraq but were disenchanted by the hypocritical wealth of the Umayyads and disdained the faiths that they encountered. Sassanid and Roman aristocrats, happy to work with the new Arab governors as long as they kept to themselves in their garrison cities, but who disdained the poor Arabs and chafed at giving up land and paying new taxes. And these tensions would, in time, boil over, leading to a civil war and the founding of a new caliphate. So Umar's reign had all of the makings of the beginning of a golden age, but buried under the surface were deep tensions, seeds of division within the new Muslim community, and between the Muslims and the peoples they now ruled. 
Omar was the one person who was able to hold these forces in balance. He was the one person who was widely respected by all sides and factions. Remember, he had been an old Meccan aristocrat himself. That's where he came from. So the Umayyads and the other old Meccan elites respected him. They felt he was one of them. But he was also an early convert who had joined with Muhammad before the flight to Medina. And after his conversion, he had forsaken wealth. He had forsaken luxury and lived in a simple mud hut like the messenger himself. The Muhajirun and the Ansari therefore felt like he was one of them. So he was respected by basically everyone. But then, one day, in November 644, while Umar was prostrated in prayer in the great mosque in Medina, a Persian slave of Christian origin fell upon him with a dagger. He stabbed Umar six times before taking the knife with which he had killed the caliph and driving it deep into his own chest. No motivation was uncovered for this murder-suicide, but there is speculation that it was in revenge for the Muslim conquest of Iran. Umar lay on the floor of the mosque, mortally wounded, but not yet dead. As he lay on the floor, bleeding out, he knew that the end was coming. But as he lay dying, Umar knew that he also had a huge problem to solve without much time. There was no clear successor to him. He had been appointed by Abu Bakr on the elderly caliph's deathbed, but Umar felt that there was no real candidate he could choose. The frontrunner, the man with perpetually the best claim, was Ali ibn Abu Talib, the first Muslim after Muhammad himself, the prophet's son-in-law, and the son of the man who had taken in the messenger when he was an eight-year-old orphan. Now, Ali was the candidate favored by the Muhajirun and the Ansari, but detested by the Umayyads and by Aisha. Ali and Umar had been rivals. Umar, in one of his fits of violent rage after the Prophet's death, had broken down the door to Ali's home and injured Ali's wife Fatima, the messenger's own daughter. After this, Umar had allied with Abu Bakr to defeat Ali at the first shura and ensure that Abu Bakr became the first caliph. While they had since reconciled, and Ali had served as Umar's deputy, the fact remained that Umar had come to power with the support of the messenger's favorite wife Aisha and her father Abu Bakr. And Aisha, the mother of the faithful, was a bitter and deep rival of Ali. But Umar also didn't want to call a shura, which would have been unpredictable and impossible to control, especially as he would be gone. He also did not want to establish a precedent that a shura had to be called to elect a new caliph. To do so would undermine his own legacy, as he himself had been appointed by his predecessor. And so, Umar took a middle course. And in the hours before his death, he appointed a six-man great council. And he declared that these six men would be both the electors and the candidates. One of them was obviously Ali, but two others, Talha and Zubaida, were brothers-in-law of Aisha. And a third was Uthman an Umayyad aristocrat, who Abu Bakr had recommended to be the president of the first shura. These three were likely to oppose Ali. Shortly after ordering this grand council, Umar died. The six-man council deliberated for three days. Ultimately, the choice came down to Ali and Uthman. Ali was at this point in his mid-forties, whereas Uthman was an elderly man in his late seventies. Deadlocked, the council began to lean to Uthman, seeing him as a stopgap. As an old man, he was unlikely to live long, which would potentially allow the party of Aisha time to muster enough support to stop Ali from coming to power in the end. Ali, feeling himself losing in the council, held out, hoping he could convince Uthman to throw his support behind him. But as night fell on the third day, the rest of the council preempted Ali and announced publicly in the mosque that Uthman would be the next caliph. Ali had no choice but to yield and pledge his allegiance to this new caliph. Bitterly, he continued to bide his time. But the election of Uthman did not heal the divisions within the caliphate, and nor would his reign prove to be an uneventful stopgap, but instead, it would mark the beginning of the first Muslim civil war. So next time, we will chart the path of the coming civil wars to close the book on the first caliphate and inaugurate its successor, the caliphate that would be destined 
to carry the messenger's new faith into Central Asia and bring it to the people who would prove to be its greatest warriors and, in time, its rulers. Thank you.